Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, we'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at capitalallocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meeting, Manish Gandhi sits down with Avichal Garg. Manish is a partner at Evanston Capital, a $4.5 billion hedge fund of funds whose CIO, Adam Blitz, was a past guest on Capital Allocators. Avichal is the co-founder of Electric Capital, 
an early stage venture firm focused on cryptocurrencies, blockchain technologies, fintech, and marketplaces. He's been a successful serial entrepreneur with executive experience at Google and Facebook, which acquired his previous company in 2012. Their conversation covers Avichal's career as an operator, influence on his investment approach, conviction in crypto, and opportunities in today's markets. They cover Electric's investment strategy, differentiated team structure, investment examples, and the future of crypto. Please enjoy this manager meeting with Avichal Garg from Electric Capital. Avichal, it is great to speak with you. We credit you for being a major reason why we began to look and invest in the blockchain and crypto space early on. I look forward to the discussion today. Good to see you, Manish. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start all the way back earlier in your life? Tell us briefly about how your childhood and the people in your life at the time contributed to who you are today. There's a lot to unpack there. That's like a multi-year therapy situation. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest things for me were I was born in India and moved to the U.S. when I was a kid. A lot of my early experiences growing up in the U.S. were primarily as an outsider, as an Indian kid in Kentucky and Ohio, where in parts of these places, there just weren't very many immigrants at all. Probably the most important things there were being comfortable as an outsider. Most of my life, I have been an outsider, and I feel actually more comfortable in that role than any other. And it turns out that psychological position is very important if you're going to be a founder or if you're going to be an investor in something like crypto. You have to be comfortable with people thinking you're dumb for many years at a time. Being a brown kid in certain parts of this country is a good training for that. As a side effect, too, I didn't have a ton of friends growing up. I got to spend a lot of time by myself. I spent a lot of time reading. I was very fortunate. My dad bought me a computer when I was quite young, seven or eight. So I started playing with it, and we built one together, and I learned to program very early when I was eight or nine. The rest is history. Upon graduating from Stanford, discuss the early part of your career prior to moving into crypto and starting electric and how this impacted you in becoming the type of investor you are now. When I was quite young, I was taking classes at the high school. I got this graphing calculator. I learned to program it. I would read ahead a week or two and write the programs for the subsequent week's classes, and then start selling those programs to everybody else in the class for like a dollar a program. I must have been maybe nine years old. There were two periods of these math classes, and so I was making like 50 bucks a week. I couldn't do anything with it. I was not mobile. I couldn't go anywhere. So I just take the bus to school and home. I ended up with hundreds and hundreds of dollars in a drawer. I probably had 800 to to $1,000. And my mom found it one day in my room. She was just like, what the hell is going on? Where did my nine-year-old get what appears to be thousands of dollars? Are you selling drugs? Are you beating up little kids and taking their money? Like, what's going on? What possible source of income could you have? So I showed her what I was doing. And so when I graduated from Stanford, my parents were like, yeah, we pretty much, by the time you were eight or nine, we figured out what you were going to do. So this is not really a surprise. You studied computer science and started a company. Upon graduating, I'd already started a company and it was running on the side. I actually had no intention of being an investor. Curtis, who's my co-founder at Electric and was a good friend of mine in college, we were just engineers and product people. So I went to Google, I worked on search ranking and ads ranking. I was very fortunate to be there at the time that I was and interact with all the people that I did. Started and sold two companies, the second one to Facebook with Curtis. We're product people. That's still how we think of ourselves. It's a funny disconnect in our heads when people describe us as investors because we still don't think of ourselves as investors in our own psyche. That's not our identity. The whole investor thing almost happened by accident. I was just hanging out with a bunch of founders in 2014, 2015, 2016. I had good access and angel flow. And a friend of mine suggested putting that together into a small seed fund and then getting some institutional capital around it and started to build a track record in case I ever wanted to do SPVs or anything like that behind some of those opportunities. 
for years, it was basically a hobby. And only in 2018 did Curtis and I consider doing that seriously because we came to believe that maybe the way to do investing in crypto would be really different. And it would look a lot more operational. It would look a lot more like a software company than it would a traditional investment firm. And that idea piqued our interest, the opportunity to build a different kind of investment firm that's engineering-led and engineering-driven and looks more like a startup than it does a VC firm. And so it was one of the things that caught our eye and said, well, maybe this investing thing could be good. And we're pretty good at it. We have a good track record prior. So let's see if we can actually be more than hobbyists. Let's see if we can be professionals at it. Then we kicked off Electric in 2018. Launching Electric in 2018 was a very contrary decision at the time. (laughs) Sometimes we forget that with how much crypto and blockchain has caught on today. The investable universe was very small. The use cases didn't yet exist in blockchain. And there were very few funds in the space. And on top of that, considering the success you had up to then, you could have chosen to launch another startup or even a generalist venture firm. So what gave you the conviction and desire to launch a dedicated crypto and blockchain fund at that time? A lot to unpack there. It's something I think about in retrospect. And it's one of these things where with most entrepreneurial journeys, if you actually understood the pain you were in for, you probably wouldn't do it. And I think Curtis and I were just naive. We actually didn't understand what it takes to run a VC firm. And had we actually understood that, it's not clear to me that we would have undertaken that journey. 2018 was really painful. Bizarrely, it was easier for us to raise a billion dollars than it was to raise that first $10 million. The number of no's we got, the number of people that thought we were idiots was, I can't tell you. The number of people who think we're idiots again is probably off the charts. That's okay. Like I said, we've had good training in this. Being an entrepreneur, you just wake up every day and you get kicked in the face and people think you're an idiot for a few years until you're not. And so it's fine. That was 2018. Just people were like, this thing makes no sense. Why would I do this? Level of discourse and understanding in the institutional investor community, very low, straightforward questions. It's fine. People have to get up to speed. So it's not intended as a criticism per se. But to your point, it was very early. It's funny because from our perspective, we've been dabbling in that space for five or six years at that point. But for everybody else, all the questions were brand new. There's just this gulf between what we thought the level of understanding was going to be and where the level of understanding was. We made a number of mistakes, as all startups do, where the fund structures weren't quite right. We had to unravel a bunch of stuff in 2019 as a result of that. We built a lot of muscle around how to speak and connect with LPs, how to explain what we're doing, even just getting up to speed on things like taxes and accounting and audit, all these other things that mechanically have to do in the business. By the time 2020 came around, we'd made a number of really, really great investments. As is often the case, the bear markets are really, really killer investments. That first fund has gone on to do really well. As the market started to turn in 2020, the other thing that happened is a lot of people who saw us make the leap in 2018 and and knew that we'd been playing with this space since 2016, they looked at it and said, wow, these guys are still around. (laughs) They kept going. Maybe for these electric guys, it's not just a short-term thing. That's the challenge with crypto. The cycles are so volatile and, and there's so much money to be made in a relatively short period of time that it does bring out the opportunists. For us now, having been building electric for four years, having been investing in the space personally for six or seven years, if you count our Bitcoin investments, 10 years plus, people are starting to say, okay, well, maybe there's something else here. What do these guys actually believe? So it's been really interesting the last year in particular, as the market has turned here and gone negative again, the sorts of conversations we've been having and the kind of questions we get are very different from what they were in 2018. 2018, there was a lot of, is this a scam? Is it dead? Why are you doing this? That kind of stuff. And now a lot of the questions are, why are you doing this? But from a perspective of what are the things that are working? It almost to us feels like the tone has shifted to, okay, this thing is not going away. This space is probably not going to die. So what's real and what's not, which is a very different conversation, which I think is great. It's progress. I'm actually really excited that we're back kind of in this bear market because the noise goes down. The press goes away. They don't want to talk to us anymore. 
Curtis and I always joke that the best investments are when nobody wants to talk to us and we're slowly getting there. When we're very, very unpopular, it is actually the right time to be investing. I'm actually pretty excited that we're getting back into a bear market because the builders keep building on the frontiers of technology and they just keep coming week over week. This week, I've had conversations with six or seven founders that are just amazing and they're still coming in and they're just as excited as ever. That's the fun of the bear market. The noise goes down and those types of people keep coming. Many of us who've followed you over the years have taken for granted your conviction in the space. Maybe rewind a little bit and tell us how you did develop that conviction, especially early on. It's funny because it doesn't feel like conviction to me. I actually feel like a skeptic. And that's sort of my operating principle is I'm a little bit skeptical. But I think to the rest of the world, it feels like conviction. And to me, it doesn't because I just look at the numbers. I just look at the facts. It goes back to this idea of when you're an outsider, one of the skills that you have to learn is really thinking for yourself and believing in things for the reasons that you see, not because of what other people say. I look at things like how many young people believe in Bitcoin? How many young people below 40 would rather own Bitcoin than government bonds or stocks? I look at the number of developers that are coming to the space. You know, we do an annual developer report. It just looks at open source developers, but we have that internal data that's more updated. And you see full-time developers is not changing. The number of developers that are continuing to write code in Ethereum, despite prices being down 60 to 80 percent, is flat. The number of full-time developers hasn't gone down. They're still writing code. I look at $100 billion plus of stable coins that are circulating in this system. And that's real. Trillions of dollars of economic activity. Look at the caliber of engineers coming into the space. Just talk to these people. These are brilliant, brilliant people. I talk with senators and people at the White House, and you can just see over the last 12 to 24 months how much they've gotten up to speed and how many of them have said, actually, I think this thing is real and I don't think it's going away. I go to these conferences and when you're on the ground in a place like Portugal or Gurgaon in India and you show up and 5,000 people are there and you look around and you say, holy crap, all of these people are like 22. They're not going anywhere for 40 to 50 years. They're in. I look at so many signals, whether it's data or qualitative signals, on-chain, off-chain, traction, all beyond price. Price is sort of irrelevant. Price is a lagging indicator, in my opinion. Price will move if there's real value, real utility. So look at all these other things around demographics, around developers, around on-chain usage, around the use cases that are working. And everything just so clearly points in one direction. This thing is working and it's going to be here. It's not going away. And the tailwinds are so, so strong that to me, it doesn't even feel like conviction. It just feels obvious. I don't know how anybody could look at this data and come to any conclusion other than this thing is working and it will continue to work. And the people who are here are not going anywhere. Every time that's happened, anytime there's some new technology with fundamental utility that lets you do things you couldn't do before, and the people who show up there are young people and engineers, that's a pretty good indicator. It's really simple heuristic. If you just go hang out where the college kids are and where the developers are, and you invest in that, for the last 40 years, you've probably made a lot of money. Keep following that pattern, follow the young people and follow the engineers, and you'll probably do quite well as an investor. Look at the history of these technology cycles, and it's the same thing happening all over again. You mentioned your partner, Curtis. You've known Curtis for a long time and teamed up with him at Electric. Talk about how both of you met, became partners during your career, and decided to launch Electric together. Curtis is one of my oldest friends. He was in my freshman dorm at Stanford, so I've known him 15 plus years at this point. He's just an amazing guy. I don't know anybody who meets Curtis that doesn't love him. He's just a genuinely good human being. And that comes across. You talk with him for three minutes and you're like, this is a solid, upstanding human being. If I had a son, I would want my son to grow up to be like Curtis. And he's brilliant. He's an amazing engineer. We became good friends in college and stayed in touch. And it turns out we just have really complementary skill sets. We're both technical, but he's far more technical than I am. 
just a next level engineer. And I think because we have complementary personalities, we have overlapping but complementary skill sets, it works really well. When we work together, he's the CTO and I'm the CEO, and I 100% trust him and he 100% trusts me. We work together for so long that at some point we mind melded. In my own head, I have a mental model for what Curtis is going to do and I can predict what he's going to do and what he's going to say. I'm sure he does in his head as well. After we sold the company to Facebook and we were exploring what to do next, we actually thought we would start another company. And we're dabbling with crypto and we decided we were going to pick crypto in 2016 as the space. Number one lesson as an entrepreneur for us was you have to pick the right market. And if you pick the right market, it's all tailwind. And if you don't, it's all headwind. We were very convinced on this market, both philosophically, but from a fundamentals and engineering perspective. When we decided to move in the investment direction, we had a lot of conversations around, is this actually what we want to do? I think Curtis's fingerprints are all over electric. Let's shift gears here and discuss investing in the blockchain space. Considering the significant drawdown this year in tokenized assets, as well as the carnage we've seen with the failures of Terra, Three Arrows Capital, Celsius, and the challenges at others, including BlockFi. There's a legitimate question some people will have right now about the validity of the space and its future potential. I know in some degree you've addressed it, but what would you say to why investors should remain excited about the future of blockchain and why you think this past year and what we've seen here reflects a bump in the road rather than a dead end? All good questions. It's good that investors ask those questions. A couple of thoughts. Judging any space by its worst actors is just a bad heuristic. If you judged the internet and all the value that the internet has created by all of the most terrible things that happen on the internet, you would miss the point. Yes, there's absolutely terrible, terrible, terrible stuff that happens on the internet. And there's also remarkable, amazing stuff that happens on the internet. So I think investors have to reframe it. And the question that you should be asking is, well, where is the value? What are the things that are working and why are they working? Who are the people that are good people and what are they building? And there's a lot of that. That's really what venture is. If you think about most venture funds, you spend a lot of time saying no. You spend a lot of time looking at decks that you're just going to pass on. And it's really that asset selection or it's that founder selection in the early stage of saying, actually, this person out of the thousand people I've talked to is really onto something and they're going to create a lot of value. Crypto is no different. It's an early stage market. It's an early stage asset class. And the real questions are what's happening and where's their real value? When you look at things like Three Arrows, What I find remarkable is it's basically 2008 all over again. The thing that caused this issue is exactly the reason crypto exists. I don't think this is quite the narrative if you look at the mainstream or even if you look at Twitter, but crypto kind of worked. DeFi worked. DeFi didn't fail here. Maker is still going. Frax is still going. Ethereum is producing blocks. You can send money around using stable coins. You can still take money out of Aave. All the systems that are designed to be over-collateralized and resilient, which is really what these decentralized systems are, is they're optimizing for resilience, they continue to work. The systems that failed, by and large, were because of off-chain, opaque behavior. So if an entity goes around and borrows a bunch of money and levers up and then is under-collateralized or they didn't give any collateral to the people that they borrowed money from, those people that were putting money into such a system were doing it with poor underwriting and with poor risk controls. And they didn't understand what they were doing. And they potentially didn't explain the risks to the retail lenders. That kind of stuff is 2008. It's a lot of really bad risk management, a lot of really bad opaque lending, people borrowing money that they shouldn't have been borrowing without sufficient collateral, borrowing from multiple places all at once, similar to what happened with Archegos last year. And to me, it's really an indictment of the centralized finance system. 
people can go around and borrow all of this money and nobody really knows how much leverage they've taken. Nobody really knows what the risks are. And so you can't underwrite that stuff. And actually it turns out on chain, you can't really do that. You can see exactly what's happening. You can exactly see how much money they have. You can see where that leverage has gone and what's going to happen when it unwinds. Some of the bad behavior, which is now getting flushed out, which is great. The bulk of it is driven by the same things that happened in 2008 that led to the creation of crypto in the first place. And a lot of the stuff that's been a response to that, that has been true to the principles of what this space is supposed to be, have actually done quite well over the last six, 12 months in terms of resilience and not failing and not falling over. We're now starting to get to a point where there are real basic tools in the space and primitives in the space that are doing what they're supposed to do and are working and continue to work. So that's where we're spending a lot of our time now is what are the things that in this part of the market cycle have real utility and are continuing to work and people find them valuable, users actually find them valuable, and they're persisting because... On the way down, likely what happens is these things overcorrect. In the same way that on the way up, people get irrationally exuberant and happy. Things are never as bad as they seem and things are never as good as they seem. I think it's really important to remember that. We tend to think a lot of these things will overcorrect relative to the value that they've created and relative to the value that they will create. Right now, we're being patient, but I do think you're starting to see some of those opportunities in the space where there are things that really work. The code is good and the technology is real and the users are real, and they're starting to approach that point of being undervalued. The last point you made, which I think is very interesting, we found over history during the more challenging times is where you learn about those early use cases and how they perform both in times that are good and times that are bad. Talk about how we've learned about these early use cases. You mentioned DeFi and how that's showing to have actually lived up to expectations during this drawdown. NFT, gaming, others. What have we learned about these areas this year during this drawdown period? On the layer ones, things like Ethereum, Near, Solana, what we've seen is that there are real developer communities starting to form here, and people are building applications, DeFi, NFT, and otherwise, and those things have real usage. You look at something like Magic Eden on Solana, the run rate for that business is hundreds of millions of dollars a year. The GMV is billions and billions of dollars a year of assets being purchased, and that's on another new L1 in Solana. So you're starting to see the L1s are actually working, which in 2018, none of these things had launched beyond Ethereum. And so it was sort of the promise that these things would one day work. You're starting to see the layer twos emerge as scaling solutions on top of these base chains. And they actually work. You can go into Optimism and Arbitrum and Starkware supports DYDX. The L2s work. You go in there and you can move stuff around and the fees are really low and they're live. They work. You look at NFTs in 2017, 2018, you had CryptoKitties and that was kind of it. And now you have the proliferation of these things into projects that have made billions of dollars where artists are getting secondary revenue streams off of the sale of their NFTs. You have real life examples. Some of these are different levels of scale, but like Nas came in and did an NFT sale where the NFTs entitle you to part of the royalties from his music. And that works. You're starting to see real communities form around these NFTs. You can go to conferences, you can go to in-person meetups where the only way to get in is to have the NFT for that community or token gated discords where you have to have the NFT to get in. The experimentation that's happening in that universe is amazing. You look at DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, we're investors in a company called Syndicate, which is essentially DAO infrastructure, it makes it really easy to create a DAO and use that infrastructure. We now have over 5,000 DAOs that are using the Syndicate platform in just the last six or nine months. And you look at a case study like Constitution DAO, which I think is fascinating, where a group of people on the internet decided to band together to try to buy a copy of the US Constitution that was going up for auction. And in about 48 hours, they raised about $48 million which is a real testament to the infrastructure works. You can actually do stuff with it. And beyond that, even decentralized infrastructures, you have things like IPFS, 
interplanetary file system, which is incentivized with Filecoin, or Arweave, which is a permanent data store. And these things work. You can actually store data on them. Depending on what you're storing and how you're storing it and how you're retrieving it, it's competitive with AWS. So you kind of look across the spectrum. What's really interesting is in 2018, all of this stuff was theoretical. One day, it was going to be possible to have low-fee, high-throughput layer ones. One day, L2s would work on top of Ethereum. One day, you'd be able to store files on IPFS, and it would be replicated all over the world and work. One day, you'd have NFTs and games, and it's real. It's not theoretical anymore. Now, is it at the usage that you would want? Is it at the scale that you would really want? Not yet. It's remarkable to me that it's actually here now. It's no longer theoretical. Across all of those, I think there are really interesting investment opportunities. You're starting to see it happen in pockets. But if you can find those pockets, I think there's some amazing return potential for venture investors. It really is a venture game. You have to get pretty deep on these spaces. You have to understand what's theoretical versus what's practical today. You have to understand what use cases make sense. You have to understand the teams that are building here. There's a lot of underwriting early stage, just like you would in any new sector. The team really matters. The number of opportunities has just grown exponentially. And all this stuff is now real. That's what's so remarkable to me. I remember having these conversations in 2017, 2018, like one day this thing will exist and they all exist now. It's just mind blowing to me. Let's speak about your firm's investment strategy. What we found interesting with your investment approach is your focus on projects and protocols that you believe are building real moats in this industry. An example that I remember is that prior to and during the DeFi summer of 2020, you passed on several emerging DeFi protocols due to questions on whether liquidity provision incentives can build a defensible business. And this was pretty contrarian to some of the other venture firms at the time. We've seen early breakouts in this space that haven't been able to sustain their early success or are disrupted by an improved second or third mover who can leverage and learn from what was built by the early incumbent and the launch of their product. Discuss your take on how a project and protocol can build an enduring edge in this industry and how this has impacted what you invest in. Our framework for this is if you think about there's an x-axis, which is essentially how close to the user are you? All the way on the left on the x-axis is do you own some sort of user relationship? All the way on the right is the bare metal technology that the solution runs on. You see this in a lot of industries. All the way on the left might be Apple. They own iOS. They own iPhone. All the way on the right might be something like ARM, the processor that goes into your phone, or Qualcomm. And somewhere in the middle is like Foxconn, let's say, integrating a bunch of stuff together. In PC land, you would have seen Windows all the way on the left. They really owned the end user relationship. All the way on the right is Intel. You see this with Tesla. You see this with Facebook. Value chain, essentially. Think of a y-axis, which is how much value does that entity capture? What you can visualize is sort of a U-curve, which is to say that if you're on the far left and you really own the user relationship, you can capture a ton of value. And if you're on the far right, you have some CapEx-heavy, hard technology problem, you can likely capture a lot of value. And if you're somewhere in the middle, you're essentially like a systems integrator. You're piecing these two things together. And over time, you're going to get squeezed. This is a framework or an observation by the Acer CEO in the late 80s. It applies to a lot of markets. And I think it applies to crypto and DeFi as well. What you see is on the far left are folks like Coinbase or Binance or FTX. They own the end user relationship. They own KYC, they own onboarding, a lot of challenges there. But they are the interface into a lot of crypto. And all the way on the far right would be Bitcoin and Ethereum, layer one. It's really hard to build a new layer one and get it off the ground. They capture a lot of value in time. And if you're in the middle, over time, you're going to get squeezed. 
over time, anybody that owns the end user relationship is likely going to try to have leverage over you and they'll squeeze your margins. From the right side, if you only exist on one chain, the people on other chains want their native protocol to be able to be successful. So you're kind of getting squeezed from the right as well as each ecosystem says, I want my L1 token to be successful. So I'm going to support my local player for this DeFi protocol. If you're a DeFi protocol in the middle, you likely are getting squeezed. So what that means is the DeFi protocols in the middle, like a Uniswap, really have to try to move up either the left-hand side or the right-hand side of the curve somehow, starting with being at the bottom and try to capture more value. So I think in the case of somebody like Uniswap, you're going to see them try to capture more end-user-facing value and try to own that interface. There's no surprise here. You just look at who they're hiring. They just hired a friend of mine to run product, actually, and he's formerly at Facebook and Coinbase. He's a product person. Or if you look at, let's say, DYDX, or you look at Compound, they're moving up the right side of the curve. They're essentially saying, we need to have our own L1. If we don't have our own layer one, we're going to get squeezed. You're just seeing that competitive dynamic play out. And so we've always thought that investing at the bottom of that U-curve in the long run is not a great place to be. There are some exceptions, especially if you can have protocol-controlled value, where the protocol itself owns many billions of dollars. So there are some exceptions there. But a lot of these protocols, ultimately, we think will not capture that much value, despite their being very useful. It's just going to be really tough for them to actually capture significant value defensively over time. And for us and our style of investing, we're fundamentally long. We want to be low turnover. Many times because of our fund structures, we're venture fund structure. We can opt into a multi-multi-year lockup or a 10-year lockup on these things, which is really valuable from the protocol's perspective or from the project's perspective because increasingly you're seeing people with these lockups give governance boosts. So if you're willing to lock up your tokens for two or three or four years, you have more governance power. So it's actually quite valuable for us to be able to do that. But if we're going to take that position, then we really have to believe that four or five, six years out, things will continue to capture value. In many of these cases, we worry that many of these DeFi protocols will actually just get squeezed and will not capture significant value without some very significant transformations on what they do. And then in that case, the real question ends up being, is it actually the protocol that's capturing value or is it the company built on top of the protocol that's actually capturing all the value? And do you really want to be invested in the protocol or do you really want to be invested in the company? You've mentioned earlier in our discussion, you've always kept a close eye on this growing developer ecosystem and even produce a highly recognized developer report that is shared with the industry on an annual basis. Talk a little further why you think this is important to Electric and how it has impacted what you may invest in. Well, it goes back to this insight that there are some really simple heuristics in investing, in our opinion, early stage investing. And one of the best heuristics is follow the developers. That was our intuition. So we said, how do we know where the developers are? There's no Bloomberg terminal that just shows you that. We built that system. We built a system that crawls all of GitHub and GitLab and a bunch of open source repositories and figures out where there's real developer activity and figures out where people are actually writing code and where those people are long-term committed and credits the original developers of that stuff. With open source, somebody can copy paste the code and just move it away. That was the intuition. It's really simple. Figure out where the developers are and where they're spending time. And that's early signal on where value accrual will happen over the long term, especially if those developers are committed. So we just built the systems to be able to do that. In venture, it's a little different than public market hedge investing, where if you have a proprietary information advantage in public equities land, you want to keep it to yourself because that's your alpha. In venture land, you want to give away and create as much value as possible because you want all the best founders to come work with you. Philosophically, we try to give away as much as we can. The intuition here is very much inspired actually by Andreessen. Because I think what Andreessen got right, one of the things they got right, they essentially built a media company that monetizes with venture capital. And they realized that that top of funnel investment flow is really valuable. And by having this amazing reach across all of their partners, across the institution, they just have such tremendous reach that they built akin to a media company. Then they get to see everything because people want to come talk to them. Everybody knows about them. They're top of mind. 
media that happens. People like to journalists, people want to be in the New York Times, they want to talk to the Wall Street Journal, and so on. It's just those are terrible business models. We try to monetize the content. And Jerusalem realizes if you give away the content and you monetize with venture capital, that's an amazing business. It's a much better business than a media company. The way we think about it, inspired by that, is with venture, not only does reach matter, but brand and goodwill matters. So do people think that you're a good actor? Do people want to work with you? Is there credibility there? And if you think about in the world, who are people that actually have tremendous credibility and are considered good actors that people really want to work with and respect? In technology, one of those pockets is open source developers. The internet runs on open source software. And those people have created tremendous value. And especially for founders and for engineers, they have tremendous respect for those kinds of people. The way we think about the firm is, can you build an open source engineering development shop that happens to monetize through venture capital? Because it turns out writing open source code is a terrible business model. But if you can do that and create a bunch of goodwill and help people in venture, that's a great way to get lots of good investment flow. That's the approach that we take. And that's why we give away all this data. We work really closely. We built these systems out of pocket. We work with a number of foundations, most of the major L1 chain foundations and various ecosystems in the space and nonprofits in the space to just give away the data so everybody understands where there's real value that's being created. And let's go support those people. If there's real value being created in some pocket of this ecosystem, those people deserve support. They're doing real work. And so let's go find those people and help them. We try to give away as much of the data as we can. You are active investors, not only in private rounds, but also in liquid tokens. And I mentioned that the liquid token segment can be misunderstood by certain investors. Discuss your interest in the liquid segment of the market, where not every venture manager will play, and what insight you can provide to investors about how to think about the investment opportunity in this segment versus the opportunity in the private rounds. Obviously, we see in crypto, uniquely, there's a converge of early stage, both in the public and private, but love to hear your thoughts here further. I think this is one of the more challenging things in the space because when people think liquid, they immediately think mature. They don't think venture because historically venture has been illiquid. Think about the S-curve of technology adoption. The way venture and private investing has evolved over the last 20 years, as the availability of capital has gone up, as you move up the S-curve, you just stay private. All the way up, I can just keep raising billions of dollars and then one day I go IPO, but I do it closer to the top of the S-curve rather than at the bottom. So if you go back to the late 90s or early 2000s, companies would go public much sooner. And there are lots of reasons for that. But I think one of them is the availability of capital. Why would you go public if you don't need to? If you can raise billions of dollars on the private markets and stay focused as a company and not have a share price that moves every day and that comes with consequences, not to mention all the disclosures and the visibility that now your competitors have into your business and so on. That incentive structure has really moved in that direction of can we stay private as long as possible in traditional venture. In crypto, one of the guiding beliefs or principles is that the people who use the products and create real value in these two-sided marketplaces should benefit from the value that they're creating. The users of this stuff should also have a stake in the success and should benefit from the success of these protocols and these products. If that's true, what you really need to do is, in effect, quote unquote, go public as quickly as possible. You want to give away as much of the token supply to the actual users of the thing that will ultimately make it successful as quickly as possible. What you're doing is having your tokens go live at the bottom of the S-curve rather than the top. Because what you're trying to do is get the users to be beneficiaries and to try to give away the tokens over time to the people who are actually using the thing. What that does is it creates venture-like returns in an asset that is relatively liquid. It's not as liquid as public equities, but it's somewhat liquid, which creates all sorts of new challenges. Valuing these things, assessing these things. In an up market, things are dramatically overvalued. And in a down market, likely things are dramatically undervalued. Figuring out how the value capture works and whether or not it accrues back to the token. Figuring out how to reassess your conviction in things. 
and perhaps move out of them, which is not really an option that venture investors have. You can't be three years in and say, hey, this thing is not working. Let's harvest it and let's recycle it. So a lot of the decision making on the front end, figuring out whether or not to actually enter, it's sort of a continuous thing rather than a discrete thing. It's not like if there's a series A and then a series B, you can choose to enter at any time. Once you're in, re-underwriting that and deciding what to do about it, having the motions internally to actually be able to redeploy capital, everything downstream of that really changes. Not to mention the regulatory, you have to be registered with the SEC, you have to have internal infrastructure for your finance team to mark the books properly, you have to pay your taxes properly. This is where we build software to actually be able to do all of this stuff because there isn't really great third-party tooling for most of this, especially at institutional scale. Everything mechanically inside the business changes and everything in terms of how you actually deploy the capital changes as a result of this change in liquidity profile and how quickly things go liquid. Essentially, these are seed stage and series A companies that have gone public, which I think makes it really challenging for traditional VCs. It also makes it really challenging for us, but that's why there's opportunity here. It's not easy and it's still very nascent. We're kind of in the 90s in many ways, pattern matching to the internet. How do you even think about what these things are worth? In the 90s, the way that internet stocks were valued was on eyeballs, which is a really goofy metric. You just took people times two, effectively. That doesn't really make sense. A media business and a payments business and a recurring revenue SaaS business and an e-commerce business have to be valued differently. The metrics you look at have to be different. That's where we are right now with crypto and Web3 is we're just creating the frameworks to think about how value capture works, which creates tremendous opportunity because we're still in very, very early days of how to even assess the value of these things. Let's shift to the topic of your organization and how it's been designed. Electric was sought to create a different organizational design to those seen at generalist venture managers and one that resembles the companies you're investing in. Unpack this for us. How can it be seen in how you've built Electric today? One of our fundamental beliefs, which I think we're validating, and I don't think we know whether or not it's true yet, we'll know over the next decade is that when the infrastructure for a space changes, and I think this is what's really happening with crypto is it's software eating money, and therefore anything that touches money, all capital markets. But if you look at that software eating the world phenomenon, and you look at it in other industries, one of the things that becomes apparent is that the startups who are designed organizationally to take advantage of that infrastructure are the ones who succeed relative to the incumbents. Let's take something like Amazon versus Walmart. Why hasn't Walmart been able to compete against Amazon? It's taken them 30 years to figure it out. And why weren't they able to do it for 28 of those 30 years? Why did it take them so long? Well, it's because it's not just putting up a website. It's not just getting warehouses. What you actually have to do is inside your organization, you have to empower the right people. And at Walmart, what you really have to do is you take the CEO and make them the COO. And you'd have to take all of your product and engineer talent and pay them twice as much and like we upgrade a bunch of your talent. At Walmart, they might even call them the CIO, culturally, chief information officer, and elevate them to the CEO. You basically have to change your org chart. And you have to go to your partnerships people and your business people and say, by the way, now you make half as much. If you look at Amazon, the engineers run the show. Bezos is a computer scientist. He's an engineer. The power dynamics internally are totally different. And you see that repeat in industry after industry. Look at YouTube and Facebook versus the newspapers or the TV companies. Who's in power? Who has control? Who gets to make the ultimate decision and why? Facebook and Google, the engineers ultimately decide. And it's run by engineers. At any traditional company, especially a media company, like Sheryl Sandberg would be the CEO and Mark Zuckerberg would be the head of product. But that's actually inverted in a technology company. With crypto, you're going to see the same thing, both at the traditional financial institutions. If you're building a crypto native bank, the CEO is probably a bank today would call the CIO. What a bank today would call the CEO, you probably make your COO. You really have to change your organization. And our belief is that the same thing is going to happen to venture capital. If crypto is soft rating money, grant that for a second, 
And what you have is now the ability to have 24-7 digital capital markets that are global. Venture capital is just one form of capital deployment in a sea of others. As the infrastructure changes, I think you have to change your human organization to reflect that infrastructure. So Curtis and I both come from engineering and product backgrounds. Everybody on the core investment team has a computer science degree. Ken was at Facebook for 10 years, writing code and, and building systems. Maria started a company, she was CTO, and she worked on search at Microsoft. We don't have associates and principals. We just hire engineers. So we have eight engineers on staff. And these are killer people. We just hired the former VP of engineering from Robinhood to come be a leader on our engineering team and work with our portfolio companies. We have a director of design from Facebook, two designers on staff. We have a very senior designer who's at Unity and Oculus. We have another unannounced VP level person from Instagram. We're bringing in these people that know how to build stuff. If you look at our organization in the org chart, there's essentially a CEO and a CTO and eight engineers and a data scientist and two designers and then a marketing person, product marketing, not LP facing, one finance person and one ops person. That doesn't look like a traditional VC firm. If I showed you that org chart, you'd probably say, oh, that looks like a software startup. And that's very much by design. That is one of the hypotheses that we're testing out here is actually that by building the firm differently, you'll just be good at different things and you'll actually be better suited for this new emerging asset class. And that's why we can do all these things on chain that we do. So we can participate in smart contracts, we can participate in airdrops, we can run nodes, we can generate yield on those assets. All the engineers sit in the investment team meetings. They're on the investment team. We compensate them as such. We'll know in the next five years or so whether or not that hypothesis was correct. It could have been a terrible idea, totally incorrect. But early indications are that's actually a differentiated way to build a firm. And the founders respond well to that. Like I was saying, that's how Curtis and I think of ourselves. We don't think of ourselves as investors. We think of ourselves as founders. The way we're building the firm, that comes across. Let's build on your last comment about entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs and blockchain have looked to choose investors that are not only reputable firms, but also those that can be extensions to their team and provide real value add to what they're building. And it's needed that much more as a lot of these people are converting from Web 2 to Web 3 or are newer to the space. Talk about where you have focused on your approach that you've taken in supporting entrepreneurs and how you've leveraged your firm's capability and design to support them. A lot of what we end up doing and thinking about is what are the crypto native things that founders and protocols need that are different from traditional ventures? So for example, we certainly invest in equity-based businesses. There might be a board there that we participate in. But in some of these more crypto-native protocols, there's no board. There's just a DAO. And the way that you help is by taking your tokens, moving them into a smart contract, locking them up for three years to get a boost on your governance power, and then using that to go vote on the right proposals in the DAO and on the forums. And you have to do that on chain. You have to signal in the right ways. What we try to do is when we do an onboarding after investing in our founder, we walk them through all the things we can do from helping them think through the product and build that in a crypto-native way to helping them close engineers or product people or designers as they're coming in to thinking about the metrics that you might want for this kind of a business because the crypto metrics may be very different. And how you think about running your business day-to-day is going to be different to community building and customer acquisition, which is very different in this space because many of the traditional customer acquisition channels you can't use. Like Facebook and Google don't make it easy to advertise crypto things. You just can't use those channels. So the way that you actually acquire customers is very different to, okay, once your thing is live, how do you actually get it off the ground? And that may be that you need a couple million dollars to come into your liquidity pools on chain. It may be that you need somebody to run some software in a data center. We can help with that. You may not have nodes in Asian data centers. Great. We'll go spin up some nodes in some Asian data centers to help create diversity across where all these assets are sitting and how the transactions are being processed to one-off things where you need something very specific on chain to make that protocol successful. And we'll just go build that. We've done custom things for our teams. 
that's how we're oriented is likely every 12 months, the state of the art of how these things operate will move. VE lockups, vote score lockups for governance wasn't a thing 12 months ago, 13 months ago. You have to stay on the frontier. And part of it for us is by working really closely with these founders and saying, what do you need? Maybe we could build something custom for you. We're staying on the frontier of what everybody else will do. And then being able to reuse that and create value for our founders. It's really an iterative process. There are a set of things we can do today. But really what we're keeping an eye on is what are the things the founders are asking us for so that we can build those things and stay on the edge of what's going to happen over the next 12 to 24 months. He consents his view that it will become a multi-chain world rather than one only dominated by Ethereum. We've seen emerging chains with real development taking place on top of them. You were early investors in NIR and have continued to invest in this protocol through your latest funds. Discuss NIR and why you think they'll become one of the winners in this current multi-chain war. We tend to think the world is going to be multi-chain. It's not going to be one chain to rule them all. And there probably is going to be some sort of power law there. So the big winner will be really big. We tend to think Bitcoin and Ethereum will be really big. TBD, how big? And obviously not investment advice, but it's interesting to see how much momentum and traction they really have. But they do have some challenges. Ethereum has some scaling challenges. There's an open question of what the network topology will really look like. Will it be layer twos that settle back to Ethereum? Will it be side chains that don't share Ethereum security that settle back to Ethereum? How many side chains or layer twos will there be? Or will it be much more heterogeneous and you'll actually have many different kinds of layer one chains that have bridges that allow you to move assets between them? And these various layer ones are optimized for different use cases. We tend to think that it will be heterogeneous and that by making different design trade-offs at the layer one in terms of how the consensus algorithms work, how do you scale and what are the means to scaling, even programming languages, you'll create different sorts of network effects. You'll create different kinds of use cases that emerge. And those ecosystems will then interoperate with each other. So that's a 50,000 foot view why we think there's going to be a multi-chain world is the design space for the L1s is very, very large. And the use cases that emerge out of that will be very diverse. What we like about things like Near is that they're just taking a slightly different approach. And they've really leaned into the ability to have sharding very early, proof of stake and sharding. So this is what Ethereum 2 is trying to move towards. But I think they've also done a really good job of building a good developer experience by having multiple ways to write code, whether it's Rust or TypeScript that will compile down by building something like Aurora, which is an L2 that's EVM compatible, Ethereum virtual machine compatible to allow people to write code, but then ultimately execute contracts on near. It's a really simple way for Ethereum developers to get a bunch of scalability on the side chain. They've been focused in different markets internationally, picking a couple of markets like Eastern Europe where they can get traction and build community. If you look at the list of L1s, Bitcoin, obviously, Ethereum, Near, Solana, Avalanche, Cosmos, Polkadot, I could name others in our portfolio. There's maybe 20-ish reasonable competitors right now where the teams are really good. The technology is real. It is differentiated. It lets you build new kinds of things and the ecosystem is starting to emerge. And if you believe the market is going to be as large as we think it's going to be, having some exposure across the highly credible ones with real developer ecosystems to us seems like a pretty reasonable way to be placing bets. We think really highly of the near team. We were in their seed round back in 2018. I've been tracking that for quite some time. In terms of real technology that actually works, the computer science behind it is actually real. The infrastructure is real. They've created real value. They're easily in the top five of things that will actually persist and will survive and have real value and real ecosystems built on top of them. You were Series A investors in Magic Eden and recently co-led a Series B round in the company. Magic Eden is the dominant NFT marketplace on Solana. It competes with broader NFT marketplaces like OpenSea and LooksRare and other more verticalized NFT places such as Soparare and Foundation. 
This latest Series B round was done at a $1.5 billion valuation. Discuss your interest in Magic Eden and how you are comfortable with leading this latest round at this type of valuation at a time when the overall NFT volume has dropped significantly and private market values have started to come down. The high level here is I've come to believe that NFTs are probably how crypto goes mainstream. So as much as I love DeFi and I think it's amazing, and it will be a huge market in dollar terms, options and derivatives and interest rate swaps and these kinds of things are not things that 3 billion people understand. These are things that like 200 million people will use and it'll be institutional heavy. So we continue to be really optimistic about DeFi, but if you look at what's happening with NFTs, it's musicians and athletes and celebrities, these elements of culture and the culture bearers. And these are things that 3 billion people will do. Like everybody listens to music. Everybody watches sports. Everybody is into celebrities and movies. And this is a wild stat I think most people don't realize. But in the US alone, 35 million people spend more than 20 hours a week playing video games. That's a lot of people. That's a very significant percentage of adults. If you look globally, people spend about $200 billion, billion with a B, on video games every year. These are massive markets, both in dollar terms, but also in terms of the number of people who spend a very significant portion of their life in them. And that's really what NFTs are doing. They're, in my opinion, the first real consumer application for a lot of this crypto infrastructure, for peer-to-peer payment infrastructure. And Magic Eden has, in nine months, gone from zero to 95% market share on Solana. And if you look at the numbers, and these are public because everything on chain is public, at the time that we made the investment, they were doing like 100 million or so annualized run rate, ARR for their business, a 12 to 15x multiple on top line revenue for a very fast growing company that we think might have the potential to be a 50 to $100 billion company. It doesn't actually seem that crazy at all to us. Monstrously profitable with a very small team, and they've demonstrated an amazing ability to execute. We're at a macro level very excited about it. And when you zoom in a little bit, say, okay, maybe NFTs are how things go mainstream. Why would you bet so aggressively on a business that does this? The belief we've come to is that the NFT markets are actually going to be more defensible than the cryptocurrency markets. And it's because the assets that you're purchasing are, by definition, unique and distinct. So the analogy here is Airbnb versus, let's say, Uber. If you look at Airbnb's margins, much more defensible. And it's because the inventory really matters. If you're going to get a house, being three streets over in San Francisco changes whether or not you stay at that house. Or if the house has a pool and you have young kids, that's a no-go. The uniqueness of the inventory really matters. And it creates a willingness to pay and it creates actually defensibility in your margins. Because if you can find the right thing that's a perfect fit for you, you're glad to take it. Contrast that with something like Uber versus Lyft. You don't really care what car shows up. Do you really care if it's a Honda or a Toyota? Do you really care if it's Uber or Lyft? Not really. The Uber Lyft example is kind of like the Bitcoin ETH example, which is you're not buying a particular Bitcoin. You just want to buy some Bitcoin. And so you're willing to go to Coinbase. And a new exchange can actually get off the ground because you can tap into those sources of liquidity. Whereas here, I think the liquidity is going to be very defensible. And so if you own the creator relationships, if you treat creators well, if you are in the community, your inventory is going to be really defensible. And therefore, your margins long term will be very defensible. You could imagine that OpenSea and Magic Eden, the two biggest companies in this space, over time could actually build many of the more commodity things that Coinbase or FTX is trying to build. If you need Solana or Ethereum to buy an NFT, is it so crazy that you just build Ethereum cryptocurrency exchange into it and tap into global liquidity pools across Coinbase and FTX and Binance and so on and just start sitting in front of that liquidity? That doesn't seem crazy to me. MetaMask has demonstrated, for example, that that can be a killer business because if you own the end user relationship and they want to access these assets, you can take a cut there. They're strategically really, really well positioned. I think this is actually how crypto is going to go mainstream. I think it's entirely possible that they're more defensible than even the cryptocurrency exchange businesses, which we've already seen are worth tens of billions of dollars. 
between their numbers today and the potential of it, that all makes sense. And then for us with the Magic Eden team in particular, in the Series A, literally in five minutes, myself and my partner Maria on this call, and I slacked her within five minutes and I said, OMG, we have to give these guys money. It's just so obvious how good they are. It's one of these moments, it's like a Facebook versus MySpace situation. You just see a person or a team that's just so, so good. If you have that sort of market conviction and the early product has product market fit, often as a venture investor, you are really betting on the team. And the team here is just exceptional. They're world-class. They're so good. It's funny. It goes back to what you were talking about earlier around conviction. It's one of those things where it feels like a high conviction bet from the outside, and it just feels so obvious from the inside. And those are the best. When those things work, that's where you get a Facebook or an FTX or a Coinbase kind of outcome, which can be pretty monster. So we're pretty excited about it. Electric in its young life now, a few years in, has come a long way and is an early mover in this space. How do you think about the long-term objectives for Electric? Where do you take the firm next and what are you looking for Electric to accomplish? And more personally, what would you like to accomplish? I'll start with the highest, highest level, which is, to me, what's really interesting about what we're building is crypto is a starting point. It's a very important enabler. One of the things I've come to believe is that the single biggest resource constraint that we have in the world is human brain power. There's 7 billion-ish humans on planet Earth. Think about the top 10% smartest people in society. Those are really smart people. I don't think we've tapped 700 million human brains yet. And I think if we did, we would probably have, I don't know, 500 Elons. We would have literally 500 companies that would get us to Mars and we would be able to do amazing things. We'd colonize the moon. We'd understand the oceans. We would be able to terraform planets. We'd be able to fix climate change. We'd have nuclear fusion. The amount of potential in humanity is amazing. I think we've topped like 1% of it. And the bottlenecks, in my opinion, are threefold. One is you have to be able to identify these people. Where are they? And they're all over the world. And they're primarily actually outside the US, just by the numbers of it. Two, you have to be able to get them resources. You have to get them capital. What's been remarkable about the internet and software what we've seen is it actually doesn't take that much capital to get people going. Like look at Y Combinator. They're giving people twenty five dollars to $250,000. And out of that came Stripe and Airbnb. When you add up all those companies, I think they're probably going to end up creating $500 billion to a trillion dollars of value for relatively small checks. The first problem really got solved by the internet. Everybody started to come online and everybody got a supercomputer in their pocket. The second problem, actually, I think crypto solves. We can actually now get money to anybody in the world. And you see that. We invest globally. We invest in Israel. We invest in Europe. We invest in Asia. We invest in the United States. And increasingly, the teams are distributed. The teams are finding software talent everywhere. I think crypto is actually helping solve the second problem. And then the third problem is if you can find these people and you can give them money, you have to help them. The biggest help you give them, of course, there's knowledge and domain expertise and how do you actually build a company and get it off the ground. But a lot of it is people just need people who believe in them. And if you sort of irrationally believe in a founder, you're like, I think you're capable of greatness, and you yourself are truly convinced of that, eventually the founder will come to believe that, even if they don't today. And that is a massive, massive unlock. I actually do think most people are capable of doing a lot more than even they think they're capable of doing. And the unlock is somebody else believing that they are capable of doing those great things. And you put those three things together, that's a huge unlock on society, on humanity. To me, that's the interesting thing that we're building here is because we can now move money around globally, if we can build a black box here, if we can build a system where we can identify these people no matter where they are, we can get them resources, and then we can give them the infrastructure that they need, we can get them capital and a belief structure, I think you'll create tremendous value. To me, that's ultimately what we're building. And crypto is actually a really, really big unlock because now we can find these people and give them money no matter where they are, and they can build companies no matter where they are. Now, what form that takes, do we keep raising more funds? Do we modify the human organization that we're building and maybe need to tweak that? There are a lot of open questions there. 
I always remind our team that Sequoia was founded in 1972. So we're in like Sequoia in 1975 or 1976. We have a long, long way to go to actually be able to do the things that I think we're capable of doing. Let's conclude our discussion here today with a lightning round of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I don't have any. That's it. I'm so happy that that's the case because basically it took my hobby, which is hanging out with founders and crypto and turned it into my day job. So I'm very lucky. What is your most important daily habit? Probably spending time with family right at the end of the day. I've blocked off time every day to do that and try to enjoy that time every day. What's your biggest personal or investment pet peeve? Probably lack of honesty, both intellectual and personal. If you can't be brutally honest with yourself, it's just really hard to make any progress. What is the biggest mistake you made and what did you learn from it? I made many, 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 many mistakes. I read this. I can't take credit for it, but venture is basically two types of investments. There are no good investments in venture. It's either investments where you said no, that you should have said yes, or it's investments where you said yes, but you should have put in a lot more money. There's just no good venture investments. Basically, my entire life is a series of mistakes. I either should have said yes, or I should have put in a lot more money. What teaching from your parents most stayed with you? It's not an explicit teaching, it's actually implicit, which is probably the case for most people. It's the things that people do not say that actually really stick with you. And my parents are extremely hardworking, value-oriented people. Like They just want to create value in the world. They're both academic researchers, classic American dream kind of story. They gave up a lot for their kids. Is really all the things that they didn't say but did that stick with me. And lastly, what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? Again, there's probably a thousand I should write them down to share with my future children so that they don't make those mistakes. The one I've been thinking about more recently is just how important sleep is. For about 10 years, didn't sleep as much as I should have because I was too busy working. But in retrospect, that has taken its toll. And now I have to make up for that. That's probably the big one from the last six months is just actually taking care of myself so I can be around for another 50 years to do what I want to do. Thanks, Avichal. This was fun. I very much enjoyed the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time.